Happy Tuesday, and welcome to A Conversation with a Reluctant Therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. And this week, we are going to be celebrating National Mentoring Month. I actually didn't even know there was a whole month dedicated to mentoring, but I am a huge fan and proponent uh, to the value of mentoring for those who are being mentored and those who actually take the time to do the mentoring work. I don't know if all of us even really understand what it is to be a mentor. Uh, I think for me, at one point in my life, I would have thought it was you know, the old wise person sitting on the hill that you would go to after a long trek and you would find them and ask them to be your mentor and they would either decide, yes, you're worthy or not. And I think that's the vision I had of mentoring for a long time. And also the mentoring of coaches that I had along the way that would kind of inspire me to do better or tell me when I was not trying hard enough, more of the coaching type of mentor. But it wasn't until I got much older that I recognized how much we are mentoring throughout our entire life. Every time someone who admires you watches what you're doing, you're mentoring. So a big part of parenting is about mentoring. You're trying to guide your children, offer them support, be there to answer their questions and help them to develop the life skills they need to be successful. So all of us who have parented or worked with other people or spent the time listening to someone's story in some way have been mentors ourselves, but maybe haven't identified that we're doing the work of a mentor. So National Mentoring Month is an opportunity to raise awareness about the power and the impact that mentoring has on everyone's lives, those who participate as mentors and those who are the mentees. And it's also a time to recognize and honor the contribution of those who are intentionally mentoring through organizations such as Big Brothers and Big Sisters. And so my guest today is one of those mentors who we're going to recognize and honor (laughs) uh, throughout the course of this hour for her efforts uh, to give back to the community in a really profound and special way. So Katya Sengel is an author, a journalist, or maybe even the other ways around, a journalist and an author, and also a professor of journalism at Cal Poly and a big in the Big Brothers Big Sisters program. And so I've invited Katya to come in today to talk about her life and how she got to this place of wanting to give back of her time to mentor others and why it's important to her, but just also the whole uh, journey of who she is, because all of us have some sort of gifts that we can share with other people. It's just a matter of tapping in and kind of figuring out what they are and how we can best utilize them. And also, I think throughout the course of our lives, we experience things that we would like to share with other people and maybe don't know how to best do that. But what I found through the years of being a psychotherapist is that one-on-one experience with another person, just sitting and speaking with or guiding or offering a kind ear to one other person is one of the most powerful experiences you can have. Just that taking that time to sit with another human being, witness their lives and offer them Uh, space is a huge, huge gift. And Katya is one of those people. So we're going to take the next hour to talk with her and get to know about her life and experiences. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist, and you can be part of the conversation after the program by sending me an email to elizabeth at thereluctanttherapist.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. You can leave me a message there. 
You can listen to previous shows by visiting kcbx.org. And you can also podcast the show to listen at your convenience or to share with others by going wherever it is you find your podcasts, search for a conversation with a reluctant therapist, hit subscribe, and it'll be there to listen when you're ready. So we're going to take a quick break, come back and start our conversation during National Mentoring Month with Katya Single. You're listening to Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. Darling, I hate to see you so angry with the world. If people want a piece of you, then they're missing something for themselves. Maybe it's selfish of me to look at you and say, Come back to me, girl, I love, and I'll stay, cause I love your smile, yes I love your smile, how I love your smile, more than you know. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and I'd like to welcome Katya Sengel into the program today. Thank you for showing up and hanging out for an hour. Thank you so much for having me. So you and I are gathering for a couple reasons today. One is to talk about National Mentoring Month um, and your experience as a mentor working with Big Brothers Big Sisters, and also because we're going to have a conversation again on January the 20th. Uh, as part of the National Mentoring Month that's open to the public. It's a free community conversation that's going to be at the Unitarian University Church, uh, which is on Lawton Street in San Luis Obispo from two to four. And so we're also here to invite people to come hear more of this conversation themselves. So Katya, could you please talk a little bit about who you are and what drives your interest in mentoring? Yeah, I um. I'm a writer, journalist, author, and teach journalism at Cal Poly as well. And I think uh, this kind of all dovetails with my most recent book. It's actually my fourth book is um, called Straight Jackets and Lunch Money. And it's about my uh, childhood experience. And I um, ended up in a, a children's hospital psychosomatic ward when I was 10 years old. And um it, it, it kind of in the book I explore, well, I talk about that time, but then I go back as an adult and kind of revisit the doctors who treated me and such. And I explore kind of that, how that experience shaped my desire to one, tell other people's stories and two, to kind of mentor other children who might feel um, be not necessarily the same type of issues I had or anything, but just be struggling. Um, and also, realizing the people who actually played that role for me, because I was lucky enough to have a lot of um, really important mentors who made a difference in my life. So I think um, that kind of, uh, in the book, I talk about how all of that early life experience really led to my career and then also to the work I do as a mentor. And they're all kind of connected, to be truthful, the writing, the mentoring, the the early life experiences. Um, 
And so uh, with the book came out in the fall and then with mentoring month coming, it just seemed a great uh, way to kind of tie it all together. And so what I guess I'd love, I want to talk about the book for sure, but I I'm also curious about how you found your way to journalism and I just want to jump in and say, what was the writing you did following Bigfoot and how did you end up in Mongolia? I, I think I'd love to know kind of those stories about you uh, to get this full picture of what you bring to the mentoring work. Um, and then kind of how you came to be in San Luis Obispo, because this is a rather small pocket on on the earth to go off and do these big adventures that I read about in your your bio. So maybe you can kind of fill in some of that story of what brought you to San Luis Obispo and what are the, the writing journalistic adventures that you've been on throughout your life? Yeah. So San Luis Obispo, I am so bad at keeping track of time, but I, I think it's been about 10 years I've been here. And then actually, so I'm California native, but um, Bay area I grew up in and my grandparents, my mom's parents um, are LA area. And as a kid, my mom, as a single mom used to take me and my sister every summer to stay with my grandparents so they'd take care of us so she could work. And um, we'd always pass through, when my grandparents would take us back at the end of the summer, we'd pass through San Luis Obispo and my grandpa loved the town. <laughs> and he always said he wanted to open an uh, air, uh, um, not an Airbnb, wrong. Bed and breakfast. Um, bed and breakfast <laughs> here. And my grandma was like, no, that's too much work for me. But it was funny. So we'd stop and I kind of fell in love with it. And I was very close with my um, grandparents. And so San Luis Obispo was always kind of in my head there a little. And then um, I did a lot of work after um, after college as a journalist. I went overseas and then I was in Kentucky at a newspaper. And then I came back to the Bay Area at some point, and it was just too expensive for me. And I started looking at, okay, what, what about the, um, San Luis Obispo as my grandpa always talked about. And I was like, Hmm, I'll, I'll check it out. And I think I did like a writer's conference here event. And then I was like, Oh, it's so nice here. And I'm like, Oh, they have a university. And I was doing some teaching at UC Berkeley extension at that point. And I was like, Hmm, let's see if they need a teacher. And, um, it just kind of, that got, um, I was only teaching one class at the time and I was like, okay, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to move. And, um, it worked and I've been here ever since. And I love it. Um, it's, it works well with, as you notice, I do do a lot of traveling for work, um, and adventures. So it's great to come back home to kind of a quieter place and share that with, yeah, share that with my students and have this kind of quieter life. Um, by the beach and peaceful, clean air. I was just um, in India and Nepal recently, and I love Nepal and India is great too, but India, the, the uh, especially in New Delhi, the, the air pollution is just so awful. And it always makes me feel so lucky when I see our blue skies and just, we're really incredibly lucky to live where we live. And so did, where did you go to college? I went to uh, UC San Diego and that was the furthest I could get from home and still play in state tuition. And it was also, again, close to my grandparents who were in LA. So, And did you major in journalism? Was it always your intent to be a writer? And how did you find that gift? Yeah, writing is something I always loved, even um, 
when I was really young, before I could actually write, I used to dictate stories to um, people who could write. Um, and then it, more creative uh, stories and poetry. Um, and then in college, I was a creative writing major, not journalism. And at one point I was like, how am I going to make a living at this? And so I took um, a leave of absence and I <laughs> walked into a little daily uh, newspaper and said, I want to enter, not daily, sorry, weekly newspaper, small town weekly newspaper. And they're like, what's your experience? And I'm like, none. <laughs> and somehow I, I talked myself into an internship there. And then from there, I was like, I actually like this journalism thing um, and ended up then getting an internship at the San Diego Union Tribune, which helped me a lot because um, I, I was able to intern at the features section, get some really good clips. And I had a really good mentor um, there. So I've had both personal mentors, career mentors. I've had so many different ones, but um, Mark Sauer, I've still... Uh, it's been a couple of years since we've talked, but I've kept up with him over the years. He was just uh, such an important person um, in my career track. Even after I, when I had my first job, I used to still send him my stories, asking him for advice and edits because I didn't think I was getting enough editing. And he's been super supportive. So and, and with journalism, I got um, I found feature writing. So I've done news writing as well, but I tend to gravitate towards the stories that you can be more creative with um, and the way you tell them. So that creative writing background still comes in. It's just true stories, but they're still crafted uh, very much. And that is my favorite type of story to tell uh, are those ones. So in your journalism career, what kind of features have you written? Yeah. And that's, that's the other one I think. I got a reputation early on as writing tear jerkers. I tended to <laughs> gravity, yeah, gravitate towards sadder stories. I definitely never, I, I once actually was purposefully an editor assigned me to a fashion show because they were like, you never write like the those other type of stories. You write about the orphanages and you write about the mothers, the Russian mothers going to Chechnya to bring back their soldier sons. Um, this is 20 years ago, and now the mothers are doing that in Ukraine. I mean, some things change and don't change. But um, I was always attracted to, I, I call them human interest, um, but also, I guess, about the stories I, I thought maybe didn't get as much attention or the people who really... Um, we needed to hear their stories and we weren't hearing them, I felt, I think. Um, and, and then a lot of times children ones as well. I um, later at right out of college, I went overseas to work uh, as a reporter in Latvia and then Ukraine. Um, and then I came back and I worked in a newspaper in Kentucky. Um, and some of the stories I did in Kentucky was uh, a story for um girls who were um, in a detention facility and were retraining retired racing greyhounds. And so we did a series where we followed the two girls while they were doing that. Um, and afterwards, uh, one of those girls, I, I tried to keep mentoring. But so I, I was always gravitated towards those stories of people who, I don't even know how to explain it, just maybe living on the outskirts a little. I also did a lot of international type things of different communities that maybe um, 
immigrant refugee communities uh, in the U.S. um, that were trying to find their way and their place. Um, Gosh, it's so hard because I I also write, did stories about minor league baseball players that, but also I guess struggles were a lot in the stories, but not necessarily um, they're not all dark or anything. They're just about um, some of the things people go through. Um, when the, we were fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, I tried to do quite a few stories about um, soldiers and their families, but also about um, some of the Iraqis who had worked for U.S. forces who then were able to come on visas to the U.S., um, and just shining a light on things I thought people need to know about that they might not realize the situations. Like at the time, not a lot of people realized um, what some of the Iraqis were risking to help American forces and then how difficult it was for them to be resettled here. Um, If you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. My guest today is Katya Singel. She's a journalist and an author and a mentor And we're uh, celebrating National Mentoring Month, raising awareness about the power and impact of mentoring, but also National Mentoring Month is about recognizing and honoring the contribution of those people who put themselves in the position of being a mentor. And Katya is one of those uh, people as a big in the Big Brothers, Big Sisters organization. So it is interesting because you touched briefly at the beginning of the show that your most recent book, Straight Jackets and Lunch Money, which we'll talk more deeply about following your childhood experiences that maybe, I don't, I, I guess I'm wondering if it was conscious or unconscious that you seem to be drawn to the stories of those people who live in the shadows or maybe aren't getting uh, recognition whose stories need to be told because otherwise they're kind of shoved into uh, the recesses of the world it was that a was and that seemed to be so similar to your experience as a child and ending up in the psych ward was that a conscious choice to follow these stories did you recognize it or have you recognized it that when you're doing it yeah it, it, it wasn't conscious um but i do kind of recognize it over time it was actually in writing the book i really recognized it because i started trying to piece things together a bit and and it really made sense i mean i think the back of my mind it probably kind of, there was some recognition of it, but it definitely wasn't conscious. It was just, I felt, I've always, people sometimes ask me what I'm going to write about next or what I want to write about. And I'm like, the stories just kind of tell me what needs to be written. I I don't feel sometimes like I have that much of a choice. It's just like, this is the story that needs to be told. But um, I think I also sometimes, I always... <laughs> Sometimes I think I went a little overboard earlier in my career. I remember there's like, because I was a features writer, I'd usually do the Sunday's feature story. And like around Father's Day, instead of doing kind of a more happy, joyful one, I found a father's son who the father was um, a paraplegic and, and the son was still young and actually caring for the father. And it was a sweet story and it was nice, but it was a bit much. I mean, I, I, so there was, luckily, sometimes editors forced me to do lighter things. But I also thought, you know, for all those people who don't have the perfect father-child relationship on Father's Day, I wanted something they could relate to, too. And these the, this father and son still had a loving relationship, but it was definitely... Um, there was resentment there. There were a lot of issues because of the physical limitations of the father and the son was then more like a caregiver and such. 
so I guess I always wanted to recognize those other relationships. So, so people felt they could relate to them for those who didn't have the, the hallmark, um, kind of family. Almost like you're cheering for the underdog all the time or, you know, highlighting the efforts of the underdog. Cause even writing about minor league baseball, they're kind of the underdog underdogs of the baseball world because they're just not quite to the national league. So what did you write about the, the minor league and where were you when you wrote this story? Yeah. And, and that actually was, um, I was in Kentucky at the time. And so Kentucky had at the time, um, several minor league teams and I followed them and I actually found that really fascinating. I don't know that I'd want to write about major league baseball. Also, it's so much harder to approach those people, you know, in the minors, less people are approaching them, except some of the players were even a big deal back then. And were especially when they get to the higher level of, uh, the minors, um, but I thought once I got into it, I hadn't originally wanted to write about it. My editor had assigned a story and then I wrote the story and I was like, oh, this would make a good book. And it was just because the culture fascinated me. It was so different from what, um, most people experience. I didn't understand how much, and also I think the devotion, the love they showed for the sport was a bit like writers, you know, sometimes there isn't a huge reward monetarily in the life, but we get to do what we really enjoy doing. We feel purpose for, and that was with these minor league players. They really don't make a lot of money. They have to do other jobs during, out of the season and such a lot of them, but they do it because it's what they love. Um, but they're the lifestyle was interesting to me. I didn't realize like during the season, they had like no days off, like one day off a month. And that day was a travel day. And I was like, how do you do that? And then their house, I mean, they didn't, um, some of them didn't even know their address because they're never there. And it was just, I think also it impressed me too, how much to get to that level. They had to have talent, but you also had to have luck. And you also had, because, you know, injuries and timing and it is a business right so if you're a left-handed pitcher but at the time there are a bunch of left-handed pitchers there you know you're not gonna it's not gonna work as well for you and then how much the family has to put into it because almost all of them they obviously had natural ability and they worked really hard but usually their family had also devoted a lot to making them good making um going to all their games is good. There was one I'll remember, I, I tried to follow different types of players. So I, I'd follow like the bonus baby, the really young 18 year old signed right out of high school for a lot of money to the 35 year old who 35 is old um, for a minor league baseball who's got to decide what do I do now? Do I keep trying to make it or do I stop? And if I stop, what do I do? Because I stopped college midway through to join the, the, you know, professional baseball. Um, I've never done anything else. And it was really funny. The 35 year old's father, I remember him saying to me at one point, um, what am I going to do if he quits baseball? Because his life had been following the game. Baseball. He's like, first, you know, there was when he was a kid, the high school games. Then we went to the college games. Now we go to the minor league games. And so every weekend, everything, you know, was built around that. And he was to the point he would choose each season 
at spring training, when his son got assigned to a team, he was the one who would go rent an apartment for his son in that location and get it set up with some cheap furniture. So it was also, you know, so it was just really interesting to me. It reminds me of Bull Durham, uh, the movie about the minor leagues, a little bit moving around. And I'm also uh, curious, did you follow one team? Were you in Kentucky following their minor league team? Because I'm, I am fascinated by the names of the minor league teams. And we went and saw the Montgomery Biscuits play at one point. And the whole, in the smaller towns, the whole um, minor league team has the personality of the town built into it. So was there a team that you followed? Yeah, yeah. And you're so right about that. There was, um, there were four teams. So Florence Freedom, which was actually, I call it the lowest of the low. It's not even affiliated. So minor league has levels and then there's the unaffiliated, which is, um, and they were in Cincinnati, um, right by Cincinnati. They were in Florence, Kentucky, which is a little town, but it's borders Cincinnati. And then the Louisville bats was the, um, triple <clears throat> a team, which is the highest right before you, um, go to the majors and they were for the Cincinnati Reds at the time. And since then, some of these teams have changed. Um, they changed the minor league thing and stuff. Cause this was back more than a decade ago. Um, and then two single a, the Bowling Green hot rods and the hot rods comes from cause Bowling Ring Bowling Green was big on like auto racing in some way. Um, and then what was the other one? There was one other, uh, Florence Bowling Green. Wait, or maybe it was just three. It's been a while. It was my first book. Um, uh, Bowling, no, there's, there's one other, oh yeah, Lexington Legends. And they're the one that doesn't exist when the minor league thing changed. I think they are now unaffiliated. They were, um, single a team that was affiliated with the majors, but I think they lost that affiliation, but they were, like you said, the gimmicks are so fascinating. They would, it's and that was last. <laughs> yeah. And so I followed not just the players. I followed the people who come up with the ideas for the gimmicks. I followed um, the behind the scenes, the owners of um, the minor league teams and managers. And um, there was one, gimmick um dying to get in they literally decided to give away um a coffin and then figured out afterwards maybe that was not the best promotion <laughs> it's funny my husband and i were in montgomery alabama and went and saw a montgomery biscuits game and it happened to be evangelical night at the stadium and so my husband had no trouble getting a beer <laughs> because there was no no one drinking and they had all they had <laughs> and, it was, and they had a choir come out the Sunday choir came out and saying and it was quite something in, in many ways I I think of all the things you've written that one really caught my eye and what was the name the title of that book if people are interested in reading more about the minor league yeah it's bluegrass baseball a year in the minor league life I love it okay so my guest today is Katya Single and we're talking about her life as a journalist and an author and as a mentor giving back her years of experience um, to her little through the Big Brothers and Big Sisters organization here in San Luis Obispo. On Saturday, January the 20th, Katya and I are actually going to have a more formal conversation in person at the Unitarian Universalist Church from 2 to 4 p.m. It's a free event 
open to the community, but we're going to get together and there's going to be, I think, appetizers and snacks and music. And uh, we're going to talk about mentoring and mental health and how the two go together. So you're all invited to join us then. But I'd love to go from the minor league baseball to what is one of the more serious then, and not that their lives weren't serious, but then what's an example of where you dove into the shadow stories of, of something a little more dark and deep? Um, Book-wise or article-wise? You get to choose. You're telling your story however you'd like. <laughs> I I think maybe we'll go with a book um, exiled from the killing fields of Cambodia to California and back. And I always get confused if it's my second or third book because I wrote one book before it got published and they, so it's like, it gets confusing, but um, it uh, was really one I felt I wanted, I had to write. Um, and it is, it's probably my darkest and uh, in, uh, in some ways hard, hardest to read people say just because of um, some of the, uh, subject matter and what it was. And it actually came out of an article I had, um, in high school, I, I went to high school in Berkeley, Berkeley high school in the Bay area. And I had a friend who was a Cambodian refugee and I back in high school, I really didn't know anything about refugees or immigration or how any of that worked. But some years later, um, my friend told me that some of her, family relatives um, were being deported from the U.S. And, and I didn't understand. I'm like, wait, you came here as refugees. How are they get, being sent away? I'm like, you're a citizen, right? And she was like, no. And I was like, well, why aren't you a citizen? And I didn't understand that in the U.S. that when you come as a refugee, you don't automatically get citizenship. It's another process you have to apply for. And it can be a really... Um, uh, arduous process and expensive. And so there are a number of reasons people don't apply for it, especially because they're given permanent uh, legal resident status. So the permanent makes you think it's permanent and what, you know, so there were all sorts of reasons for that. But so then I started looking into this and um, a lot of these people, uh, the Cambodians she was talking about, her friends, they were kind of my generation, my age. And really identified as American, like Davri herself, she was a Cambodian refugee, but most of her life was in the U.S. And, you know, she, she, she had a California accent. She dressed like I did. We taught, you know, we went to high school together. We uh, suffered through French class together. We, uh, it just seemed like she was, aside from being, you know, I remember I went to her house and yes, her mom didn't speak English and there were some things like that, but it just, she seemed like regular California kid to me. And so I didn't understand how this could be happening. And so I started looking into it more as the years went on. And I saw there'd been some stories about some of the men who had been sent back to Cambodia and they, they were good stories, but they also tended to focus on, um, how they were covered in tattoos and former gang members over in Cambodia and how it didn't fit in with traditional life stuff. And I, I, I wanted to tell a bit of a different story and I looked into it and there were actually some women, not nearly as many, but there were some women who had been deported as well. And so I set out to write an article about the women because I knew that would be very different too from what the men experienced there. And in writing that article, I met one of the women and 
I was just so struck by her story, her, her son at the time, I think he was a teenager or preteen and he was living in California and she was in Cambodia and her mom was in California and um, her mom later died and she had to say goodbye to her mom on at the time we didn't have zoom. It was Skype or something like that, but you know, through, a computer or phone, um, because once she was deported there, you, you can't go back. Um, and, and so I really, but I thought I couldn't, the article was a fine article, but I couldn't give justice to the situation if I didn't follow, tell the whole story. So to tell her story, you really needed to tell her mom's story about, um, the genocide in Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge and what they endured. And then you needed to tell about the resettlement in the U.S., largely in the 1980s, in a lot of times in inner cities that were at that time facing kind of the war on drugs. Um, and then you had to tell the story of her child who's growing up now as an American citizen without their parent. And so kind of this continuation of... Um, trauma. And so that was how that book came out. Um, she ended up, she didn't want to expose her child to that, which I completely respect. So I found a few other families who I followed, um, who were facing deportation and did the, uh, the full thing where I looked at what happened in Cambodia with their parents, with them when they were very little, what happened when they resettled here, what they're facing now. And I think, sorry, I should have explained what happened. Um, they they then ran afoul of the law. So as legal permanent residents, they did something to break the law. A lot of times it was a drug crime, writing bad check, those types of things. And then they do time um, for their crime and then they are subject to deportation. What was the title of that book, Katya? That's exiled from the killing fields of Cambodia to California and back. My guest today is Katya Sengel. She's a journalist, author, a mentor, and professor at Cal Poly in their journalism department. And uh, we are celebrating her, her life and also her work as a mentor. Um, we're going to take a quick break and come back and continue our conversation. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. You're listening to Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. I draw a smiley face on my hand So I understand To put things in perspective People got it worse than me Remember how reflective A smile or a laugh can be If you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and my guest today is Katya Sengel. We are celebrating National Mentor Month, Mentoring Month, uh, an opportunity to raise awareness about the power and impact of mentoring. Katya is a journalist and an author and a professor, but also a mentor through Big Brothers Big Sisters. And how long have you been doing that, Katya? It'll be either three or four years in February, I think three years, because I started when she was 10 and she's 13. And yeah, so three years now. And what inspired you to volunteer to become a big? I think I always, um, 
have wanted to mentor uh, younger people. And I did it unofficially before because I was always scared of the commitment, right? I didn't want to disappoint a child. I, I knew you're, you've got to sign up for a year and you've got, there's certain obligations. And I was like, oh, with my work and other things, what if I can't meet him? So I always put it off, put it off um, and did these unofficial type things. And, and then um, one of the photographers I work with was a big when he was really young. I think he was in his early 20s and he um, stayed with that kid for a long time. And then still kid is now grown up, has kids of their own. And hearing his stories about that. And um, I was like, you know, I want I want to do this officially. You know, I, I think I can do it just a year. I can commit. And so I did finally decide, um, to do that. And that friend who the photographer, he was, a unfortunately his, uh, little's mother died in the last year or so. And he was a pallbearer at, uh, the funeral. He became so close with that family and to this day is close with that family. Um, so I think a lot of hearing his stories a lot really helped um, solidify that. Yes, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do that with this organization because he was through big brothers, big sisters as well. And so working with this organization, have you met other, you know, people who are the mentors and other, is it a community around this opportunity? Definitely. But it was a little different for me because it actually, I, I think I signed up before COVID, but then the process of background checks and everything takes a while. And so I was actually matched during COVID. Um, and so early on, it was just online meetings. And then finally, it was so nice when we finally got to meet, I got to meet my little in person. And, and now there's actually, I think, um, a, a mentor meeting this month but so it's been a little slower like everything to get back into those things so i've done a couple and we did there there's sometimes group things there was a, a turtle turtle rescue tour and we did that um with there are a couple other bigs and littles there so we do meet some people and there's definitely support i think that's what i really like about big brothers big sisters is that um if i ever feel overwhelmed or things you hit bumps they're there to support me. And they also put the guidelines. So there is this framework of what you know, um, because that's something I've also always struggled with. When, what should you and should you not do? Like, you know, you're not really supposed to do things that cost money because you don't want the little to equate it with just gifts and things, but with the gift is the time spent and such, you know, but then also sometimes, yeah, it's okay to get a frozen yogurt tree, you know, so, but it was nice to have those kind of guidelines and the support in the community. So there definitely is this bigger community there. And I think it's, it's just, um, I'm able to take more advantage of it in the last year or so as we've kind of started opening up again. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and I, and I've heard that quite a bit from a lot of different know organizations youth organizations and community organizations that the pandemic really shut everything down but it wasn't like the doors open and everyone jumped back in that it's been a much more slow reemergence into volunteering and getting back to doing things like volunteering to be a big 
uh, brother, big sister. And and so this Saturday, the 20th, you and I will be having a more formal conversation. As I mentioned before, it's Unitarian Universalist Church from two to four, um, free event, community can come because we just want to raise awareness about mentoring and talk about mentoring and mental health. And I think in some ways encourage other people to start getting involved in, in whatever way feels important to them because there's such a huge mental health aspect to the, for the mentor. And I would imagine you've experienced some of those positive feelings of giving of your time. Yes. I think, um, I actually learn as much from my little, and I'm purposely not using her name just for her own privacy. I, I don't know that she, I'll just call her my little, um, uh, as she's learned from me, one of the early quotes she used to give was, um, Katya, just watch me. I'm a kid. I know how to have fun. And so it was like, um, cause sometimes I'd be scared to do something or reluctant or something. And she just was like, no, I know how to have fun. We're going to do this. And she's just, um, her, especially, I think actually for the pandemic, it was, it was so when we just met on zoom, and we'd ha- we'd set up a meeting and I'd open my Zoom and she'd already be there waiting. It was so cute with her big smile. And it would just kind of brighten my day. In a lot of ways, that was a dark time for so many of us. And just seeing how a little thing I did opening my Zoom and she's happy. You know, I think for me, just seeing that her joy at some of the little things um, reminds me to appreciate those things, too. Um she and not to to not to i i definitely live more in like the planning and the future and things but you know with a kid it's always immediate and now and so i learned that from her and then to see it was fun she she got into drama this year and so i got to she was really nervous at first about her lines so we practiced them together and I kind of had some of those lines memorized at one point. And then I got to see her in the play. And when those lines came up, I was like, oh yeah, I remember this. And she was perfect up there. And it was just, it was so neat to see that transformation too, you know, from this kid who was really scared about it to this kid up there who's just um, so confident. And to know you played a little role in that, right? It was something she would have done anyway, but I was able to help that little bit more that that may have made a a bit of a difference. Yeah, I think having it sounds like having that grounding aspect, because you do spend so much time traveling for your stories and your journalism work to have not just the grounding, because you mentioned you love being in San Luis Obispo so much, but the grounding of a person who's waiting for you to come back and doing those kind of day to day normal things of going to school and doing shows. I, I can imagine how that gives you a sense of Ah, this is home in in many ways. So I, I want to jump back to your life as a journalist, because again, we're celebrating your uh, life experiences and what you bring to the mentoring world. I, I can't help but notice in your bio, you talk about being in Utah. And is that when you were looking for Bigfoot? And please explain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I like to have, I try and make the bios some fun thing somewhere. And I was like, well, Searching for Bigfoot, that's got to be good. That was um, my uh, most recent long story. There's this publication called The Atavist, and they do articles, you know, it's nonfiction, but starting at 8,000 words, so really long. It's like almost novellas, and they read very creative, like suspenseful, and I've loved them for a long time. And so for years, I was trying to write for them, and I finally 
got a story and it, it ran, I think it was December and they only do 12 stories a year. So it's really hard to get in uh, too. But so the story actually, and it um, has connections to the local community here because it was, it, it started with um, what intrigued me was I read a little article. Well, in that article was out of Bakersfield, but it had a Morro Bay connection. And it was about this, uh, um, man who 50 years after his father disappeared, kind of retraced the, the steps. And so he was five years old when his dad disappeared. And the dad went on this fishing trip to Morro Bay. They lived in Bakersfield, uh, California. And um, he went with um, some other guys on this fishing trip um, and the boat capsized and two of them died um, two, I made it to shore and one, the dad just disappeared. And it's very rare for a body not to, um, be found, uh, for a number of reasons. Um, but like when I was talking to the coast guard, they said in 30 years from a boat accident, they hadn't seen that happen. So it was just this mystery. And then it was this intrigue. So these kids, um, the, there were five, the man had five kids, um, and they all, they were all under the age of 10. So first I read that, I thought, thought poor mom. Um, and then I thought, well, what is that like to live your life with this kind of mystery? And I talked to my editor and she's like, yeah, it's fascinating, but there's gotta be more to the story. So she said, start talking to them and see what there is, how it's impacted them. And so it turned out the oldest son, ended up um, being a cryptozoologist, which is someone who, in his spare time, uh, who searches for, who who looks into um, legendary or, uh, I don't know how to explain it best, but the, you know, the lake monster, or Bigfoot, those types of things. There's a whole kind of science, some call it cytoscience or whatever, but I mean, they take it very seriously. He did, um, kind of research papers that are peer reviewed and everything, you know, there's a, a very committed. And then there are also some folks who, are, who take it more fun, you know, side of it, but he was one who takes it very serious and had spent um, a lot of his spare time uh, in the last more than 50 years, I think uh, really looking for Bigfoot. And so I thought, okay, there's, there's our story. And so I got to um, he's in Utah. So I got to go there and, uh, do some kind of, we were actually just setting out game cameras. He didn't think we'd probably see anything that day, but we, we went and did that. And I learned, uh, he explained to me, you know, where some sightings were. We visited some sightings he hadn't seen, but someone else had and how he has this whole system of, um, determining if it's a likely sighting or not, you know, he's very scientific, very, um, methodical. He's actually also a, a former police detective. And so just, it was, it was fascinating for me because I never really knew that type of life. Um, so yeah, that was my Bigfoot adventure. <laughs> yeah. And it is interesting how you started off on one story with the Morro Bay connection and ended up in a whole different route with that. So your curiosity about what's behind the story, I keep going back to that. It seems like your theme of your life is what's happening underneath the story. Like here's the Christmas card of the family, but I want to know what happened an hour before the picture was taken or 10 years before the picture was taken. It seems like you're always drawn to the deeper details. And and why do you think that is related to your own experience? Um, 
Yeah, I definitely always relate it because uh, a lot of times, and I think some of it is the news. We always focus on the big event. Like we focus when there's like the reunion of, you know, people coming back or when the girlfriend gives the guy her kidney. But then I'm curious what happens 10 years later when the kidney's failing and does, is the relationship still there? You know, cause we always focus on the obvious ones. Um, so I think some of it's my curiosity and then some of it, yeah, is I think from my own experience, um, feeling like maybe people d didn't pay attention to um, childhood, you know, uh, issues and kind of look past some of those. And so I didn't want to look past people who I feel like are maybe hurting and um, need to be seen a bit and understood because I think it's easier to just kind of compartmentalize and put people in one place. So they're, they're the crazy people. We'll put them over there. They're, they're the trouble kids. We'll put them there. And I think for me, it was also, I don't want those people to feel forgotten because I, I do feel like they're written off or something. And I used to, before I mentored, I did um, a writing program at a juvenile detention facility. And part of my reason for going was just so they saw someone cared about them, right? Society cared about them. Someone that wasn't related to them, had no agenda, was there. And I remember a kid once saying, why are you here? And that for me was great because they they saw, you know, there's just a regular society cares about me. I haven't been just written off. You know, we have such a narrow uh, definition of what is normal in culture. There's very little room, <laughs> even though we think there's a lot of uniqueness and people can present how they want or you know, express themselves, but there really isn't that much variation. It's, and especially if you don't align socioeconomically or um, with the way you respond to social situations. And so I find that fascinating. And, and we're kind of leaning into your current book, which is Straight Jackets and Lunch Money, writing about your own experience when you were 10 being put into a psycho, uh, psychiatric hospital at Stanford. And uh, we're going to talk about that more on Saturday. But what's interesting is that you highlight a very common experience for many, many children, even children who don't end up having, you know, situations long-term or drug or alcohol issues, but just that experience of being a child in our society that you're not heard or not taken seriously or easily dismissed because the adult world around you is so busy in their own mess that they don't really have the time or bandwidth or curiosity to understand what's happening in the children's world. Or from my experience, so many parents are terrified of their children because they seem mysterious or, or afraid something's going to go wrong with their child or afraid that everything is a signal that something's bad. And so they tend to tamp children down or send them to therapists or, you know, so that they don't have to deal with something that might be scary. That feels like such a common story in our society. Um, and that you kind of grew up in the space where you were in some ways silenced or ignored and then amplified your voice in this giant way. And have you felt a healing from that? How has that changed how you see yourself going from being silenced in many ways to really having a loud voice? I, I think um, it, it was a very drastic measure I took of basically I tried to starve myself to death because I said the situation, family situation I was in was not 
working and no one was listening. And so there was a sort of power in it. And, and I think also as a child, you are completely powerless. All these decisions are made. Even I remember when the court case for uh, custody came up um, and there was a motion to kind of do um, not joint custody. And, and they, they talked about, well, that would be so hard on her father, on his um, psych or something. And I was like, no one was thinking about the kid, right? It's like, oh, that would be hard on the parent. It would make them feel like they're an inadequate parent, but what's it like for the kid? Um, so I think doing something that drastic, it, it I'm not going to say it was a good idea or anything, but it did, it did get um, the attention I needed. People did finally listen because um, they had to. Um, and, and I was able to eventually change the situation. So I think it, it was, but then it was dangerous too, because then I realized, okay, the way I can have power is if I'm sick or if I hurt myself. And so then you can get into other things, but it was, and I think um, as a journalist, I, I, I have a sort of power, which I guess I try and use for those others who I feel don't have the power to to give that voice. And so I think that's where those kind of relate is um, I, I feel lucky that as a journalist, I'm able to tell stories and people listen um, and hopefully maybe uh, then hear those people who, who we can't, I, I can't say I give voice to them because they have their own voice, but maybe I can help amplify it or, or just, um, draw attention to it in some way. What I'm hearing from you too is, yes, it's not that you're giving them words because they you allow them to speak, but you provide a platform for them to be heard, which is huge. But then also you take their lives seriously. And that's what I've heard from all the stories you've said today, that whether it's the minor league baseball or the Cambodian refugees, you know, or the young man who was chasing Bigfoot, you honored and respect every story as valuable and valid and not dismissed because it doesn't fit into the narrative that we expect as a culture. And I think that's one of the remarkable ways that maybe your childhood experiences have translated into your adult experiences is that you hear all voices as having something of value to share. And I think that's a beautiful gift and why um, part of the National Mentoring Month includes uh, honoring and recognizing those people who volunteer and mentor. So Katya, thank you for doing your mentor work and writing and being a part of the social narrative. And I look forward to continuing our conversation on Saturday, January the 20th at the Unitarian Universalist Church. I think there's more information at the Big Brothers Big Sisters website, um, but it is free and open to the community and uh, as you can tell, Katya is a great storyteller. And so there'll be a lot more wonderful stories uh, to come. So final thoughts. Um, it's so interesting talking with you because you <laughs> brought up things I never thought of it that way. But what you had just said, I was like, oh, that makes sense. So it's so fascinating. So I'm really excited to continue our conversation Saturday and see what else I learned about myself. I had no clue. <laughs> well, thank you for being here. This has been a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and you can be part of our conversation by sending me an email to Elizabeth at the reluctant 
follow us on Facebook or Instagram. You can leave messages there, find out what we're doing with the show. Uh, you can listen to previous shows at kcbx.org or podcast our show wherever it is you get podcasts. And if you leave a review, it'll get around to other people. Uh, as always, I appreciate, appreciate you tuning in and listening, supporting Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. We could be the healing When you're feeling all alone We could be the reason To find the strength to carry on In a world so divided We shall overcome We can be the healing We can be the flower in the gun We could be the healing We can be the flower in the gun what would I say to my son or to my daughter If they came and asked me about these days What kind of reason could I give for all the hate that's standing in the way Wish I could tell them that nobody's gonna judge them And every stranger on the block is gonna love them No bully in the world could ever hurt them But I can't say that today Cause we could be the healing Ripples out to the world. Ah.